Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the way in which it is able to be our instruction manual for life. We thank you that it's um, a sure word and that it helps us to know how we ought to see life, how we ought to conduct ourselves in the church, and uh, what steps you want us to take as believers. So Lord, today as we deal with the issue of baptism in a biblical theological framework, I pray that you would give us insight from your word. I pray that you would help us to understand, um, Lord, what it is that we at College Park believe your word to teach, and that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to listen. And um, Father, we thank you that you give us uh, challenging subjects in order to both humble us, create dependency, and uh, require um, heartfelt, earnest prayer for you to be able to um, use a prepared sermon to be able to speak words of grace and life, hope, and also challenge. So God, give us discernment today as we use your word and hear it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said it before, but it bears repeating. Theology isn't boring. Pastors are. You know that, right? Thanks for not saying amen. So I appreciate that. Thanks for not doing that. Appreciate you not doing that. Um, This morning I I want to talk about a theological issue. And it's my hope and prayer that I will not bore you. I don't think I will. Uh, But candidly, the subject we're going to talk about today um, has some uh, loadedness to it. It can be a little bit um, controversial. Um, And yet at the same time, it's something important. One of the things that we're committed to here at College Park is um, being a church that proclaims the Word of God and um, also deals with doctrinal issues as they come up in the life of the body. Sometimes large churches don't do that, and we're going to, because we feel like um, to sacrifice um, talking about doctrine is really to um, sacrifice the heartbeat of really what the church is all about. And uh, so we're going to do that today with a hope to um, help us all understand the important issue of baptism. This morning I am speaking to you on behalf of our elders regarding uh, this issue. In March of this year, I talked with you about the concept of a semper reformanda, which means the church always reforming. And essentially what that means is that the church must always be looking at both how she's doing it, why she's doing it, and the doctrine of the church in order to be sure that we're always right where we need to be. And, and candidly, healthy churches continue to look at where they're at and try and deal with important issues um, in the broad scheme of all the things that a church has to deal with. We told you in um, March that um, as elders we were going to be working through the issue of believers' baptism and told you that in the fall we would bring something back to you. We've completed our work, and this morning my aim is to uh, lay before you our work and our discussion, um, walk you through some important passages, and then uh, share with you a, a proposed constitutional change that uh, you as a congregation will be voting on uh, during a congregational meeting on October the 25th. So my aim for this sermon is this. It is thoughtful, charitable clarity. And I've chosen each of those words intentionally. Thoughtful, I want you to see what we're thinking. I want you to know it's charitable, meaning that I'm not coming at you today with um, this sense of... Um, um, trying to convince you or somehow unloving, but just trying to deal honestly with an important issue. And then also clarity. Um, this is a, an issue that um, we need to talk about and uh, one that if you're new at College Park, you need to know where we as elders are at. 
I've got three aims for this um, message underneath that theme of thoughtful, charitable clarity. There are these. First, to lay before you a biblical theology of believer's baptism. I want you to understand what you just saw up here a few moments ago and why it's such a big deal. Secondly, I want to identify for you the differences between infant baptism and believer's baptism. Help you understand what are the essential differences and why do people believe um, different things and where are we at as a church on that particular issue. And then third, to explain our proposed uh, constitutional change and to be able to help you understand what that is. And we do those in that particular order. However, there are some of you, whenever I mention the words constitution and change, and I put those together, this like conspiracy theory thing happens inside of your soul. I mean, you, you, you know who shot JFK, and you're pretty sure that you can smell a conspiracy theory. So let me just assure you of a couple things um, here this morning that I want you to know. And, and first, I just want to tell you what that proposed change is, so you can just set it aside for the next 35 minutes, and then we'll come back to it. But I, I don't want you to miss the rest of the sermon, because you're, you're you're trying to figure out what exactly is it is that we are suggesting. Here's what we're proposing. Our elders have approved language that would allow a person who was baptized after receiving Christ by another mode other than immersion to join College Park Church if, in their conscience and based upon their understanding of what that event was, believed that was a real and genuine baptism and would violate their conscience to require them to be baptized again just because it was a different mode. So we're not talking about pre-conversion. It's post-conversion different mode. So that's the issue that we as elders have uh, wrestled with. In, in other words, it's to allow within our process of joining College Park Church a mode exception for somebody post-conversion by a different means other than immersion, if that would violate their conscience. So why are we talking about this? Let me say three things. First, it is not an attempt to downgrade our membership requirements or to devalue the importance of believer's baptism. Some of you, when I immediately say this, you think in your mind, oh, I know what this is. This is just to get more people to become members. Candidly, that's not our reason. Our our rationale is, secondly, that this is an issue that's been around here at College Park for for years. Uh, One that I heard many, many times in the course of my candidacy here, and one that comes up in every single membership class And we don't have a clear answer for um, what we do in this particular scenario. It's kind of on the margins of the discussion of baptism. um, And so it's easy to kind of set aside for a while. And we need a a level of clarity to be able to help folks who are joining the church. Third, as a non-denominational church that practices believers' baptism by immersion, which we are not suggesting that we change in any way, our elders felt that it was really wise and timely to communicate who we are, where do we stand, and what are the boundaries and limitations of this discussion. So our aim was to strengthen our understanding of what baptism is, while also identifying that there are boundary issues. There's, there's a core, and then there are boundary things that we need to think about. And that's how you do good theology. You have to know what your core is, and then what are the, the boundary issues. And sometimes churches get um, kind of off-kilter because they make boundary issues their core, or they make core issues the boundary issues. So you have to know the difference in order to be um, a biblical church and to do theology well. So my aim is to walk you through the passages of Scripture that deal with this issue in a, in a, in a, a biblical theology form so you can understand, first, what is baptism, secondly, who should be baptized, and third, who should be re-baptized. Okay? So the first question is this. What is baptism? 
baptism, here's my definition. Let's begin with this. Um, baptism is a spiritual position pictured and affirmed as a believer through the symbolic cleansing of water. Okay, that's my definition. So if you don't like it, that's, it's just, it's my definition. It's a spiritual position pictured and affirmed as a believer through the symbolic cleansing of water. It's important for you to know that I'm leading here in my definition with the spiritual reality. Okay? So there's a spiritual reality. You see, when most people think of baptism, what they think about is what they see. And what you just saw here a few moments ago. They see a person getting in a tank of water, or in our case, a horse trough. You know, it's a horse trough. We, we've dressed it up nice, but it's a horse trough. And there's a big story behind that. If you'd like to know, talk to me afterwards. I'd love to tell you a story about why we have a horse trough up here. And um, it's, you see a, a person getting in this tank, they, they go under the water, and they come back up. And that is baptism, but it, baptism is so much more than that. In fact, sometimes I get a little nervous that we're too concerned about wanting to be sure that people understand this is a symbol. So I've heard before, you know, in in my former church setting, I said this. There's nothing special about this water. It's just just city water from Carmel. Nothing special about this tank. There's nothing special, nothing special. And the reason is we're trying to be sure that we make a point that it's a symbol. And, 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 and that point needs to be well made. The problem is, is that what happens here when someone goes under the water is a really big deal. So I, I choose to call it dynamic symbolism. It's a symbol, yes, and it doesn't create salvation, doesn't create grace in terms of the forgiveness of your sins, but there's a dynamic power that is there, something that's deep and rich in meaning. Maybe an illustration would help you. Uh, My wife, on her left hand, has a ring, uh, our wedding ring, and her engagement ring, and it's really important to me that she wears it. You know why? Because that wedding ring says to the world, I own her. That's why. Right? <laughs> I got chapter verse for that one, okay? If you don't like that. And, the, and just so it's fair, this wedding ring says, you know, she owns me. And, and we like it that way, okay? So that's what, what's what marriage is. It's this mutual ownership of one another. And imagine she comes back from the gym and I notice on her hand that she's taken her ring off. I'd be like, why don't you have your ring on? Well, I don't, I don't need to wear it to the gym. I'm like, yes, you do. Get that ring on. I want the whole world, I want everyone there to know you are taken, right? You know, I've, I've tried to, like, we have four kids, so I've tried to use that as man repellent on her. That's one thing. But I want that, I want that ring on her finger as well. And you, so she might say to me, oh, Mark, it's just a ring. What's the big deal? Look, that ring has dynamic symbolism attached to it. Well, granted, it's just a gold ring on her finger, but, but there's, there's power, there's meaning, there's, there's depth, there's rich meaning. In that ring. In the same way, baptism has two realities. There's a physical reality, but there's also a a, a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality in baptism relates to what happens to a person when they receive Christ. And the Bible often refers to that spiritual reality of what happens when someone receives Christ as baptism or baptism like in its language. In other words, There's a number of ways in which the Bible describes spiritual things that have happened to us, and it uses baptism metaphors to capture them. Let me show you. Look in your Bibles in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3. Baptism then first is a moment where believers 
in a spiritual reality sense, are described as being baptized in Christ. So Romans 6.3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is talking there about the spiritual reality. When you received Christ, you were plunged into Jesus. You were put into Him. All of Jesus encapsulates all of you. You're completely in Him. Verse 4, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there's this sense where believers are described as being baptized in Christ. Colossians 2.12 would be another example. It says, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. So believers are described as being baptized in Christ. Secondly, believers are described as baptized in one spirit into the body. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. Turn there so you can see that I'm not just quoting a verse to you, but it's, it's actually, these verses are in your Bible, and we need to see all of them in order to kind of build this biblical theology of what baptism is. Again, I'm making the case here that it's more than just water baptism. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. It says, For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body. Now, Paul is not talking there about a literal physical baptism. He's talking about this spiritual reality. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So what Paul is saying there is that you're different ethnically, different backgrounds, different people, but the beautiful commonality is that when you receive Christ, you were all put into the body, into the Spirit, and Paul uses the language of baptism to describe that. All right, third, go over to Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Believers are also described as having been washed by regeneration. Now, the word baptism isn't used here, but the implication is clear. In the Old Testament, baptism was used to uh, cleanse particular instruments that were used uh, for service in the temple. There was a sense in which they were unholy and then made righteous by their baptism. There was this sense of washing to make them clean. And Paul says, regarding the issue of salvation to Titus, that verse 3, Titus 3, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So there is the washing of regeneration, meaning that there's this regenerating thing that's happened in our conversion, and Paul is describing it here in the form of this metaphor of baptism. Again, not saying that baptism is the regenerating event, but saying that this washing of regeneration is baptismal-like in the spiritual reality. So, the point of all of this is that the spiritual reality of what's going on when a person receives Christ is pictured in this baptismal language. So that when we baptize someone physically, this physical event is pointing back to another event that happened 
prior to their getting in the tank or the horse trough or, or any baptismal water, a day when the reality of rising and dying with Christ was made real, pointing back to a day when you were cleansed of your sins, when you passed through judgment, when you were indwelt with the personal presence of Jesus, when you were placed in the universal church, when you were made one with other believers, when you were called to walk in newness of life. And so when someone gets baptized, we're not just celebrating their testimony, we are celebrating this enormous spiritual reality that anybody who names the name of Christ has been put into. And when we hear the waters of baptism move, we are reminded, yes, this is the spiritual reality that I now live and move in. So to minimize the symbol in terms of its impact and its power is to really neglect the reality of what is taking place in terms of the spiritual reality behind the physical act. So, let me give you an analogy here, a visual. So the physical symbol of believer's baptism, then, is an outward affirmation of what has already taken place spiritually. In other words, the Bible shows us that the person who enters the water is already in Christ. They're already in one spirit. They're already in one body. They've already been washed. All those things are already past tense. And this baptism is just merely an indicator that this has already taken place. It's the lens through which we look back and see that this is real and operative in my life. And that is why the Bible records that baptism, physical baptism, happens after people come to faith in Christ, not before. For instance, in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and preaches the gospel to him. And Cornelius and his household receive um, Christ. And as a result, um, the Holy Spirit comes, and it's evident that they really have received Christ. They're speaking in tongues, and they're prophesying. And then Peter says this, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded, this is Acts 10.48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So the point of all of this is that there's a spiritual reality, That's pictured in the waters of baptism, and that picture happens after the reality of that spiritual realm has been obtained and grabbed a hold of by that person by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, at College Park, we practice believers' baptism by immersion, and we do this for two reasons. The first is the etymology of the word baptize means to plunge, to dip, or immerse something in the water. Now, there's a range of meaning. In some cases, it doesn't mean exactly that, but the bulk of the meaning of the word seems to indicate that that is the closest representation of what we can come to in terms of what that word means. The second reason why we baptize by immersion is this, is that we, as elders, feel as though the mode of immersion, completely dipping somebody under the water and bringing them up, is the symbol that that best captures the fully orbed meaning of what it means to be in Christ and what it means to be in the Spirit, what it means to be in the body, what it means to have been washed. It's the clearest picture of what it means to have been buried and raised with Him. Now, even in the early days of the church, there's, there's early church history documents, like first-generation um, believers. There was instructions that were given to the church as to how they were bapt- to, to baptize people. And, th- and there's almost a, an order of, of priority. 
It says that you're to baptize them in a moving stream. It's a document called the Didache, and the instruction was, how do you baptize people? And if you don't have a moving stream, then in stagnant water is okay. And, and, and by the way, there's no horse trough mentioned in that text. Um, and, and then it talks about pouring. Um, it, it, and so there's, there's sort of this sense that even in the early church, they had to wrestle with, in different communities, depending upon the availability of water, there was even different sorts of forms that were used. But we've got a form available to us, and so which should we choose as far as the best picture? And we've chosen that to be immersion. So all of this to say, what is baptism? It is an ordinance of the church. You could also call it a sacrament. That means pledge. Uh, It's an ordinance of the church that symbolizes a spiritual reality. It's an act that, that symbolizes that someone has placed their faith in Christ and that their physical act of baptism is representative of this spiritual reality that has already happened in their life. Now, second question is this. Okay, so if that's what baptism is, then who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? And here's my answer. My answer is that every disciple of Jesus needs to be baptized. That's my title. Everyone should be baptized. Every disciple of Christ, I believe, is biblically commanded to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Why? Why do I say that? Well, three reasons. The first is that believer's baptism is a commanded mission of the church. Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, the Great Commission. It says this. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So there's a linkage between making disciples and baptizing. Those two things go together. They're not the same, but they are absolutely linked in their operation in the church. So it's a commanded mission of the church. Now there's a second reason, and that one comes from Acts 2 and verse 38. It's this, that baptism is closely linked to genuine faith and repentance. Now it isn't genuine faith and repentance, but it's closely linked. These two issues are linked together. Acts 2 and verse 38 says this, Peter said to them, he's talking to the masses, this is at Pentecost, and he's calling on them to... Um, repent, they, they say to him, what shall we do? And Peter then says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus. So Peter is not saying that, that, that baptism is essential for salvation. Rather, he's responding to a crowd that says, what shall we do? And Peter, talking about the genuineness of their faith, faith and the reality of what they need to embrace in Christ, he says, therefore, repent and be baptized. So baptism then becomes linked to what it means to really understand who Jesus is and what it means to be his follower. In other words, I think that those who really know and love Jesus have no problem testifying in a formal way, I believe in Jesus. That they give evidence, and in most countries around the world, it's not just what you say in terms of what you believe, but you're not really even considered, in terms of persecution, a follower of Jesus until you enter the waters of baptism. And that becomes the sign and the symbol that what you hold is real enough to put it on the line. The third reason that I think every believer should be baptized is it seems to me that it's clearly the first step after receiving the gospel. Um, the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul's in prison. The, the jail is, um, an earthquake happens. He's released and then he stays, doesn't leave. The Philippian jailer realizes that he needs to receive Christ and so he calls upon the Lord. And, and um, this is Acts 16.31. It says this, Paul said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then... He says he spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and he took them the same hour 
of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So it seems as though, from that text and a number of others, that baptism is the first step after receiving the gospel. It's an outward sign doesn't change the reality of the spiritual sense that you're in Christ and in one spirit, but it's an important outward symbol of the spiritual reality that's taken place. So, as a, from a pastoral perspective, here's what I would urge. I would encourage you, some of you are here and you know the Lord is your Savior, but for whatever reason you've never taken the first step in being baptized. And I don't know all the reasons that, that you may have decided not to do that. Maybe it's just simply an issue of neglect. You say, well, I know Jesus. What's the big deal about getting in the water? What's the big deal? And let me assure you, baptism doesn't save you. But at the same time, I would challenge you to consider that this is an important symbol. It is comparable to a wedding ring. And the question that I would have to you is, why wouldn't you embrace such an important symbol about the reality of what has taken place and follow the Lord in a step that seems to be clearly commanded um, in the Scriptures? Now, there's another issue that you might be wondering about. And this one is um, a little complicated and, candidly, a little touchy. It's one that affected my own immediate family, the issue of infant baptism. My parents were raised in a tradition where they were baptized as infants, and so was I. And I remember the time when my parents um, lovingly explained to my grandparents that they wanted to follow the Lord in, in believers' baptism. And that was a hard conversation. It took some time to be able to work through it and... There's, uh, there are ways to be able to have that conversation and to have it really um, charitably and kindly and, and graciously. Um, so I understand for those of you who are baptized as infants, the whole spiritual heritage thing and everything that goes along with that. And I, I completely, I, I feel that. I lived in a community, my last church, that we dealt with this issue all the time. And I don't mean any um, sense in, in any way to do a disservice to your upbringing or to um, your family heritage at all. I want to be very sensitive to that. At the same time, realizing that there is a difference between infant baptism and believer's baptism. And I want to just carefully, lovingly, and charitably just kind of walk you through what the differences are. I want to begin with a, um, the issue of Catholic infant baptism. Because there's a difference between Catholic infant baptism and Protestant infant baptism. And I'm summarizing this in two views, and there's, there's probably subsets and things of that sort, but for the sake of time and just um, um, simplicity, we're going to take it this way. The Catholic view of baptism is that baptism is necessary for salvation. The Catholic Church teaches that baptism is necessary for salvation in that the baptism creates regeneration. The baptism event creates the new birth. And therefore, in the Catholic view, the baptism of a child is the means by which grace is bestowed on a child. You might say, well, wait a minute, I grew up in a Catholic church, that's not what I believe. That may not be what you believe, but this is what the church doctrine is. Let me show you. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1994 edition, here's what it says. By baptism, all sins are forgiven. Original sin and all personal sins, as well as punishment for sin. Baptism is birth into the new life in Christ. In accordance with the Lord's will, it is necessary for salvation, as is the church itself, which we enter by baptism. Now, my understanding of the doctrine of grace and what the Bible teaches about works-based righteousness versus grace-based righteousness, that definition doesn't fit with my understanding of the gospel. I tell you that candidly, cautiously, and carefully, but I have to be clear. People who believe that they're saved by their baptism are not going to be really excited when they learn that the only way that they could really be saved was by receiving Christ Jesus as Lord. 
So that particular issue right here, regardless of your background, regardless of what you believe, this view, from my standpoint, is deeply concerning and, in my view, is outside of the realm of what the gospel even is. Okay? Now, the second view is different. This is a Protestant view. This would be within the realm of the gospel. Okay? So while the, the Catholic view I would view as dangerous to the gospel, the Protestant view would not be my own view, but this would be an intramural debate, meaning I have friends, dear friends, dear brothers, who we, he, we see this issue very differently, but I know that we're going to be in heaven together, and he's going to find out he's wrong, and I'm just really excited about that. <laughs> I say that jokingly, but that's I, honestly that I, I think I'm right uh, um, because this is how I see the scriptures. But he thinks he's right. But within the realm of the boundary of, of evangelical Christianity, there's room for folks who see this issue differently. But we, as a church, where do what is what is our sense of this? Well, here's what what Protestant um, view would be, um, particularly in the Reformed or Presbyterian circles, they would view baptism as symbolizing probable future regeneration. So it's not that they think that the baptism necessarily saves, but rather it's a rite performed in the hope that this child will later come to embrace his or her own faith on their own, and that's why there's a profession of faith later on usually around maybe teenagers or confirmation later on. And what they're doing in that is confirming or embracing that infant baptism and saying, I now embrace what my parents did to me as my own. And they take that from um, a parallel they see from circumcision in the Old Testament to uh, baptism in the New Testament, believing that a child is brought into the community of faith like a circumcised child um, was in the Old Testament. And they see this baptism as... Um, as something that doesn't create the new birth, but rather something that looks forward to the day when a child will embrace their own relationship with Jesus. Now, we don't baptize infants here. We don't practice infant baptism. And I, 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 I want to be able to help you understand why. What, what are the reasons that we don't do this? What are the reasons that I don't do this? Here they are. The first is this, is that candidly, I just don't believe there's sufficient biblical support for baptizing infants. I searched the scriptures, and I can't find it um, in the New Testament. And, and the passages that are referred to um, seem to pr- be pressed way too hard in order to get that out of there. The norm, clearly, is professing believers, people who, who know the Lord as Savior, who've confessed, who give evidential fruit, are the people who are then... Um, baptized because the symbol, earthly symbol, is connected to a spiritual symbol. The second reason is that believer's baptism is clearly the biblical pattern, meaning people who are baptized were believers, and infants cannot be professing believers in the same way that an adult is a professing believer, or even a small child. So we have a person, as they come to be baptized, give their testimony. And um, whether it's a small child or a um, very fluent Englishman, as we just heard a few moments ago, uh, the great, wasn't it? I always thought my preaching would be so much better if I could talk a little bit like this. You know, it's just, it's just. I was listening. Oh, this is beautiful, beautiful. But I don't have that gift. But you, from a child to a to a to an adult English-accented man, we hear the profession. Why? Because the baptismal event is linked to that profession. The other reason is that this baptism symbol is based upon faith, not a symbol that anticipates faith. So the difference between infant baptism and believer's baptism is what is the event anticipating? Is it anticipating faith to come or is it anticipating faith that's already been made real and a a reality? And the final one, the most convincing to me, is that this, that baptism pictures being in Christ. In Christ. You're in Christ. And therefore... 
children or an adult or somebody who isn't a professing believer are not yet in Christ in the same way that those who've made professions of faith are in Christ. So they haven't embraced the spiritual reality. And therefore, it makes most sense that baptism would be something that you would do post-conversion, something that you would do after you've already given evidence that you are in Christ, in the body, in the spirit, and having been washed by regeneration. So therefore, let me say this. To those of you who are baptized as infants, like I was, I would encourage you to consider um, being baptized as a believer. Now, some folks might call that a rebaptism. I don't like that term because the meaning of infant baptism and believer's baptisms are, are, are very radically different. Parents and grandparents are going to feel like it's a rebaptism. In fact, I'm so burdened about how to have those conversations well and correctly that I, I wrote an article that's on our, our website. It's in, entitled, Baptized Again, How to Talk to Family When You Are Baptized as an Infant and You Want to Be Baptized as an Adult. And to try and help walk you through, how do you have this conversation with your family so that you'll help them understand what you're doing and why? I want you to understand that that while these issues, again, are distinct and different, infant baptism from believer's baptism, again, it doesn't mean that folks who believe in infant baptism have the same view as those who are in the Catholic Church. But it's important, I think, for you to know as a church, where does College Park stand? And why do we do parent dedications? And and why don't we do infant baptism? and, and, And what's the difference? So... Final thing is this, the proposed constitutional change. I've said all of this, and this again, this is a a theological thing that you just need to think about along with us. I've said all of this in order to frame our discussion to help you understand um, really two key things. The first is that College Park is committed to believers' baptism by immersion. We're not changing the mode that we use. We're we're not in any way suggesting we're going to baptize folks by any other means other than that because of the reasons I have already identified. And also, to help you understand that we do see a clear distinction between infant baptism and believer's baptism. However, the situation that we've encountered is this. That um, there's a small group of folks, when they join our church, or even who are even here this morning, who are genuinely converted. They, They really know Christ. They're growing in their walk with Jesus. They understand what baptism is. And they were baptized after receiving Christ. However, they were baptized by some other means other than immersion. I'll give you an example. After the first service, I talked with somebody, um, emotionally said, thanks for talking about this. I was baptized in a tradition where the pastor would put the water in his hands, that would be kneeling. After I received Christ, I gave testimony, and then he would open his hands and the water would, would fall down upon me. And, and this person identified the heart of what we're wrestling with, and that is that as elders, are we prepared to say, because that baptism wasn't by the same um, mode that we prefer, that that baptism wasn't indeed genuine? Do we then require that person to be rebaptized again simply because the mode was different than what we would really prefer and like? And that's a significant question. These folks who we've dealt with, they view their post-conversion baptism as legitimate and candidly to force them or to require them to, re, re, to be rebaptized again to join our church would be to violate their conscience. Now, some folks, it's not a big deal. And they'd say, yeah, I don't have a problem being rebaptized. Um, that I was young or it wasn't as meaningful as, as what it maybe should have been. And so I'm ready. Or in some cases, folks just want to be able to do that again. That's not a bad thing at all. We would encourage that. But it's for that small minority of folks who to press on this would mean to violate their conscience and to require it in our view, would be to do something that we don't think is very helpful. 
And so therefore, our conclusion is that we should not require those folks to be rebaptized again simply because they were baptized by a different mode. Even though we're not changing our mode and even though we think it's a better mode, we can't deny the fact that that baptism was real and genuine. In fact, some of you might think, well, by doing this, you're devaluing baptism. Actually, it's the reverse. We feel like that to make an issue over mode when the baptism was genuine is actually to devalue it more than saying, you know what, that baptism that that person had was real and was genuine. In, in fact, one of the things when you do theology that's really important, maturity in theology is based not just upon what you know, but you really have to know what's important and be sure you get it in the right order of importance. When I got involved in a uh, pastor's movement in Holland, dealt with a lot of guys from different traditions, and I said to our church then, I said, you know, it's not that these issues among us aren't important. They are, but we want to get them in the right order of importance. So you can think of it this way. Uh, Is immersion important? Sure it is. Is baptism of the spiritual reality important? Sure it is. But we're trying to help you understand is that we believe the meaning of baptism is more important than the mode. And to take the mode and put it above the meaning and to require these folks to be rebaptized just because the mode was not what we wanted, we think violates something that's fairly important in terms of how we approach the scriptures and even how we approach theological issues. Therefore, the proposed changed wording in our Constitution would read like this, Membership in the church shall be restricted and limited to regenerated believers who have received baptism subsequent to regeneration. Do you know what the word subsequent means? Because I didn't when we wrote this. I was like, what does that word mean? Subsequent. Because it's, is that before or after? They're like, it's after. I'm like, okay, I'm good with it. Good, good, okay. So subsequent means after regeneration. CPC practice immersion as the mode of baptism. And the elders will consider as exceptions some who desire membership and have been baptized by another mode subsequent to conversion if it is a strong matter of their conscience informed by the scripture and led by the spirit. So again, the reason that we're suggesting this in this important theological issue is to attempt to get the issues in the right order of importance, not elevating the method over the meaning. And we also want to realize and have you realize with us that we're really serious about not wanting to violate someone's conscience about the validity of their post-conversion baptism. We want to elevate the value of what baptism is elevate it and help you understand and celebrate with us that 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 baptism is a really big deal it's a dynamic symbol it captures some of the most glorious and wonderful truths in all of the new testament as it relates to our salvation it's as i said before it's the dying and rising with christ it's being cleansed of our sins It's, it's the demonstration of passing through judgment we're picturing in that event of being indwelt with the personal presence of jesus of being placed in the body of christ of being one with one another and calling us together to walk in newness of that's a big deal that's a really big deal and therefore i urge you if you've never been baptized if you've never been baptized as a believer that that's a step that you ought to consider taking and it's our prayer as elders that you'll understand as a whole church not just what we do up here in terms of what it means in terms of just symbolic value but you really come to celebrate with us the deep and rich meaning of what it means for us to have been put in christ what it means for us to have been indwelt by the Spirit and to have been placed in one body, and that by seeing that, you'll not only love baptism, that you'll come to a greater love for one another and also for our Lord. Baptism is important, folks. Theology isn't boring. Pastors are. And I'm grateful that God gives us sticky issues like this to help us to think carefully, to, to, to act charitably, to have discussion and to say, Lord, help us to not just be a church that's filled with lots of people, but also a church that's thoughtful, 
a church that's charitable and a church that's clear. Father, we um, pray that you would help us to do our theology carefully and to walk circumspectly, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4. We live in evil days. Um, We love our brothers and sisters in Christ who may view this issue differently. And um, we're thankful that you put differences in the body of Christ to get us on our knees and to make us uh, more dependent upon you. Thank you that you've given us hard and confusing texts in the Bible to humble us, lest we think we know it all. And thank you, Father, that you, by your Spirit, are able to guide us and illumine us through your Word. And so I pray, Father, for those today who are here, who know you, who've never followed you in the step of obedience with believers' baptism, they might be encouraged and exhorted to take that step, a bold step of confessional allegiance to Jesus. And God, we pray that as a church you just walk with us during these days as we ponder and consider and pray through um, both the boundaries and the meaning of this important issue. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. God bless you.